0: Section thirty nine of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liberty Stump. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part two, Book the First, Chapter five. Queen Anne. One Above this couple there was Anne, Queen of England an ordinary woman was queen anne she was gay kindly august to a certain extent no quality of hers attained to virtue none to vice her stoutness was bloated her fun heavy her good nature stupid she was stubborn and weak as a wife she was faithless and faithful having favorites to whom she gave up her heart and a husband for whom she kept her bed as a christian she was a heretic and a bigot She had one beauty, the well-developed neck of a niobe. The rest of her person was indifferently formed. She was a clumsy coquette and a chaste one. Her skin was white and fine. She displayed a great deal of it. It was she who introduced the fashion of necklaces, of large pearls clasped round the throat. She had a narrow forehead, sensual lips, fleshy cheeks, large eyes, short sight. Her short sight extended to her mind— Beyond a burst of merriment now and then, almost as ponderous as her anger, she lived in a sort of taciturn grumble and a grumbling silence. Words escaped from her which had to be guessed at. She was a mixture of a good woman and a mischievous devil. She liked surprises, which is extremely womanlike. Anne was a pattern, just sketched roughly, of the universal eve. To that sketch had fallen that chance, the throne. She drank, her husband was a Dane, thoroughbred, A Tory, she governed by the Whigs, like a woman, like a mad woman. She had fits of rage. She was violent, a brawler. Nobody more awkward than Anne in directing affairs of state. She allowed events to fall about as they might chance. Her whole policy was cracked. She excelled in bringing about great catastrophes from little causes. When a whim of authority took hold of her, she called it giving a stir with the poker. She would say with an air of profound thought, no peer may keep his hat on before the king except de courcy baron kingsale an irish peer or it would be an injustice for my husband not to be lord high admiral since my father was and she made george of denmark high admiral of england and of all her majesty's plantations she was perpetually perspiring bad humour she did not explain her thought she exuded it there was something of the sphinx in this goose she rather liked fun teasing and practical jokes Could she have made Apollo a hunchback, it would have delighted her. But she would have left him a god. Good-natured, her ideal was to allow none to despair, and to worry all. She had often a rough word in her mouth, a little more, and she would have sworn like Elizabeth. From time to time she would take from a man's pocket, which she wore in her skirt, a little round box of chased silver, on which was her portrait, in profile, between the two letters Q.A., She would open this box and take from it, on her finger, a little pomade, with which she reddened her lips, and, having coloured her mouth, would laugh. She was greedily fond of the flat Zealand gingerbread cakes. She was proud of being fat. More of a Puritan than anything else, she would, nevertheless, have liked to devote herself to stage plays. She had an absurd academy of music, copied after that of France. In 1700 a Frenchman named Fort aroche wanted to build a royal circus at Paris at a cost of 400,000 francs which scheme was opposed by d'Argenson this fort passed into england and proposed to queen anne who was immediately charmed by the idea to build in london a theatre with machinery with a fourth understage finer than that of the king of france like louis the 14th she liked to be driven at a gallop Her teams and relays would sometimes do the distance between London and Windsor in less than an hour and a quarter. 2. In Anne's time no meeting was allowed without the permission of two justices of the peace. The assembly of twelve persons, were it only to eat oysters and drink porter, was a felony. Under her reign, otherwise relatively mild, pressing for the fleet was carried on with extreme violence, a gloomy evidence that the Englishman is a subject rather than a citizen. For centuries England suffered under that process of tyranny which gave the lie to all the old charters of freedom, and out of which France especially gathered a cause of triumph and indignation. What in some degrees diminishes the triumph is that while sailors were pressed in England, soldiers were pressed in France. In every great town of France, any able-bodied man, going through the streets on his business, was liable to be shoved by the crimps into a house called the Oven. There he was shut up with the others in the same plight, Those fit for service were picked out, and the recruiters sold them to the officers. In 1695 there were thirty of these ovens in Paris. The laws against Ireland, emanating from Queen Anne, were atrocious. Anne was born in 1664, two years before the Great Fire of London, on which the astrologers—there were some left, and Louis XIV was born with the assistance of an astrologer, and swaddled in a horoscope— predicted that, being the elder sister of fire, she would be queen— and so she was, thanks to astrology and the revolution of 1688. She had the humiliation of having only Gilbert, Archbishop of Canterbury, for godfather. To be godchild of the Pope was no longer possible in England. A mere primate is but a poor sort of godfather. Anne had to put up with one, however. It was her own fault. Why was she a Protestant? Denmark had paid for her virginity, virginitas empta, as the old charters expressed it, by a dowry of six thousand two hundred and fifty pounds a year, secured on the Balowick of Wardenburg and the island of Femarn. Anne followed, without conviction, and by routine, the traditions of William. The English under that royalty born of a revolution possessed as much liberty as they could lay hands on between the Tower of London, into which they put orators, and the pillory, into which they put writers. Anne spoke a little Danish in her private chats with her husband, and a little French in her private chats with Bolingbroke, wretched gibberish but the height of english fashion especially at court was to talk french there was never a bon mot but in french anne paid a deal of attention to her coins especially to copper coins which are the low and popular ones she wanted to cut a great figure on them six farthings were struck during her reign on the back of the first three she had merely a throne struck on the back of the fourth she ordered a triumphal chariot, and on the back of the sixth, a goddess holding a sword in one hand and an olive branch in the other, with the scroll, Bello et Pace. Her father, James the Second, was candid and cruel. She was brutal. At the same time she was mild at bottom, a contradiction which only appears such. A fit of anger metamorphosed her. Heat sugar, and it will boil. Anne was popular. England liked feminine rulers. Why? France excludes them. There is a reason at once. Perhaps there is no other. With English historians, Elizabeth embodies grandeur, Anne, good nature, as they will, be it so. But there is nothing delicate in the reigns of these women. The lines are heavy. It is gross grandeur and gross good nature. As to their immaculate virtue, England is tenacious of it, and we are not going to oppose the idea. Elizabeth was a virgin tempered by Essex, Anne, a wife, complicated by Bolingbroke three one idiotic habit of the people is to attribute to the king what they do themselves they fight who is the glory the king's they pay who is the generosity the king's then the people love him for being so rich the king receives a crown from the poor and returns them a farthing how generous he is the colossus which is the pedestal contemplates the pigmy which is the statue how great is this myrmidon he is on my back A dwarf has an excellent way of being taller than a giant. It is to perch himself on his shoulders. But that the giant should allow it, there is the wonder. And that he should admire the height of the dwarf, there is the folly. Simplicity of mankind. The equestrian statue, reserved for kings alone, is an excellent figure of royalty. The horse is the people. Only that the horse becomes transfigured by degrees. It begins in an ass, it ends in a lion then it throws its rider, and you have 1642 in England, and 1789 in France, and sometimes it devours him, and you have in England 1649, and in France 1793. That the lion should relapse into the donkey is astonishing, but it is so. This was occurring in England. It had resumed the pack-saddle, idolatry of the crown. Queen Anne, as we have just observed, was popular. What was she doing, to be so? Nothing. Nothing! That is all that is asked of the sovereign of England.' he receives for that nothing one million two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year in seventeen o five england which had but thirteen men of war under elizabeth and thirty-six under james i counted a hundred and fifty in her fleet the english had three armies five thousand men in catalonia 10,000 in Portugal, 50,000 in Flanders, and besides, was paying 1,666,666 pounds a year to monarchical and diplomatic Europe, a sort of prostitute the English people had always had in keeping. Parliament, having voted a patriotic loan of 34 million francs of annuities, there had been a crush at the exchequer to subscribe it. England was sending a squadron to the East Indies and a squadron to the west of Spain under Admiral Leake without mentioning the reserve of four hundred sail, under Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel. England had lately annexed Scotland. It was the interval between Hochstadt and Romilies, and the first of these victories was foretelling the second. England, in its cast of the net at Hockstadt, had made prisoners of twenty-seven battalions and four regiments of dragoons, and deprived France of one hundred leagues of country, France drawing back dismayed from the Danube to the Rhine. England was stretching her hand out towards Sardinia and the Balearic Islands she was bringing into her ports in triumph ten Spanish line-of-battle-ships, and many a galleon laden with gold. Hudson Bay and Straits were already half given over by Louis the Fourteenth. It was felt that he was about to give up his hold over Acadia, St. Christopher, and Newfoundland, and that he would be but too happy if England would only tolerate the King of France fishing for cod at Cape Breton. England was about to impose upon him the shame of demolishing himself the fortifications of Dunkirk. Meanwhile— she had taken Gibraltar, and was taking Barcelona. What great things accomplished! How is it possible to refuse Anne admiration for taking the trouble of living at the period? From a certain point of view, the reign of Anne appears a reflection of the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. Anne, for a moment, even with that king in the race which is called history, bears to him the vague resemblance of a reflection. Like him, she plays at a great reign. She has her monuments, her arts, her victories, her captains, her men of letters— her privy-purse to pension celebrities, her gallery of chefs d'oeuvre side by side with those of His Majesty. Her court, too, was a cortege, with the features of a triumph, an order, and a march. It was a miniature copy of all the great men of Versailles, not giants themselves. In it there is enough to deceive the eye, add God save the Queen, which might have been taken from Lully, and the ensemble becomes an illusion. Not a personage is missing. Christopher Wren is a very passable mansard. Summers is as good as Le Anne has a Racine in Dryden, and a Boyeux in Pope, a Colbert in Godolphin, a Louvois in Pembroke, and a Turenne in Marlborough. Heighten the wigs and lower the foreheads. The whole is solemn and pompous, and the Windsor of the time has a faded resemblance to Marley. Still, the whole was effeminate, and Anne's Père Telliere was called Sarah Jennings. However, there is an outline of incipient irony, which fifty years later was to turn to philosophy in the literature of the age and the protestant tartuff is unmasked by swift just in the same way as the catholic tartuff is denounced by moliere although the england of the period quarrels and fights france she imitates her and draws enlightenment from her and the light on the facade of england is french light it is a pity that anne's reign lasted but 12 years or the english would not hesitate to call it the century of anne as we say the century of louis the 14th anne appeared in 1702 as louis the 14th declined it is one of the curiosities of history that the rise of that pale planet coincides with the setting of the planet of purple, and that at the moment in which France had the king's sun, England should have had the queen moon. A detail to be noted. Louis the Fourteenth, although they never made war with him, was greatly admired in England. "'He is the kind of king they want in France,' said the English. "'The love of the English for their own liberty is mingled with a certain acceptance of servitude for others.' That favourable regard of the chains which bind their neighbours sometimes attains to enthusiasm for the despot next door. To sum up, Anne rendered her people horreux, as the French translator of Bivrelle's book repeats three times, with graceful reiteration, at the sixth and ninth page of his dedication and the third of his preface. 4. Queen Anne bore a little grudge to the Duchess Josiana, for two reasons. Firstly, because she thought the Duchess Josiana handsome. "'Secondly, because she thought the Duchess Josiana's betrothed handsome. two reasons for jealousy are sufficient for a woman. "'One is sufficient for a queen. "'Let us add that she bore her a grudge for being her sister. "'And did not like women to be pretty. "'She considered it against good morals. "'As for herself, she was ugly. "'Not from choice, however. "'A part of her religion she derived from that ugliness. "'Josiana, beautiful and philosophical, "'was a cause of vexation to the queen.' To an ugly queen, a pretty duchess is not an agreeable sister. There was another grievance, Josiana's improper birth. Anne was the daughter of Anne Hyde, a simple gentlewoman, legitimately, but vexatiously married by James the Second when Duke of York. Anne, having this inferior blood in her veins, felt herself but half royal, and Josiana, having come into the world quite irregularly, drew closer attention to the incorrectness, less great, but really existing, in the birth of the queen. The daughter of Miss looked without love upon the daughter of Bastardy, so near her. It was an unpleasant resemblance. Josiana had a right to say to Anne, My mother was at least as good as yours. At court no one said so, but they evidently thought it. This was a bore for her royal majesty. Why this Josiana? What had put it into her head to be born? What good was a Josiana? Certain relationships are detrimental. Nevertheless, Anne smiled on Josiana. Perhaps she might even have liked her, had she not been her sister. End of section thirty nine.